0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So before we jump in, I would first, if you're new with us, uh, we're glad to have you. I would highly encourage that you would fill out a Connect card and get to know some people and particularly engage with a neighborhood parish um, we really do believe that, that the church is a people to belong to and that there is a particular way in which God's grace is revealed and experienced through his, his covenant people in the church. And so we would invite you to do that. We're glad you're here with us. Um, for those of you who haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we've started going through uh, Paul's, letter, uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for what will seem like months on end because it will be months on end and that's why it'll seem that way. Um, but for the purpose of it not feeling like we're just getting lost and, and over and over talking about what, what may seem like the same thing, um, we've divided this longer sermon series into smaller series within series. And so uh, the, the first one is the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians we're going through, and it's a series that we're calling True Power. And we're calling it that because really Paul has written the letter to the Corinthians. Because in their context, they're struggling to find true wisdom and true power because they're caught up in, in the thinking and the ways of the world. They're seeking wisdom like the people of the world do, not like the people of God should. And, and so if, if we look at our text this morning, we might begin to ask ourselves the question, well, where do we find wisdom? Where does wisdom come from? Last week, Paul said that, that the wisdom of men is Foolishness to God, but the wisdom of God is, is foolishness to men or, or to the world. And, and so we have to ask ourselves, where do we get wisdom? And, and I think we are much like the Corinthians. Um, in Houston, where, where we're in a city that's built on, on merit-earning favor, and, and we're built on striving for excellence and to be the best, when, when we're looking to form an opinion on something, Which most of us are probably convinced there are so many things that we have to have an opinion on. Whether it's a a political issue or an ethical issue or a a relational issue. And so where do we go to find wisdom for these things? Maybe we listen to what is written in the news and, and different hot takes on current events. And that's where we find wisdom. Maybe we read books that scholars wrote, hoping that that in the words of more educated people that we will somehow be enlightened. Maybe we listen to our family members or our close friends. Maybe we get caught up in in specific Christian authors or teachers. and, And maybe they are the ones who possess this wisdom that we need. And we find ourselves divided and compartmentalizing wisdom into all these different areas. This is the source that I go for news, I I read this magazine or this newspaper. Um, For uh, theological issues, I go to this website or to this scholar. For ethical issues, I I talk to this teacher. And and really that's what's going on in the church in Corinth. In, In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians, that that where they have been wrong is that they're divided primarily over teachers. And and so the context of living in Corinth is, it's really like a 2,000-year-old Houston. It's a port city. It's a meritocracy. There's a lot of intellectualism, but there's also kind of a seedy underbelly. And, And one of the ways in which the culture worked in Corinth is that various teachers, particularly philosophers, would come into the public square and they would debate and they would try to convince the people that they had the superior philosophy and that they were the superior philosopher and so corinthians would get caught up in the i follow this philosophical teaching or i follow this teacher and what paul found is that in the corinthian church they were doing the same Some of the Corinthians were convinced that Paul had the teaching that they needed and they said, I follow Paul. But some others heard Apollos teach and thought, no, Apollos is the one who I'll follow. And so they were divided in this immature search for the right spiritual guru. And so the question that we have to come to this text with is, is where do we get wisdom? If Paul said that the wisdom of man is foolishness, to God, where is wisdom actually to be found? Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So Paul says there is wisdom to be found, and it's for the mature. Uh, And and without getting hung up on that word, really, the translation of that word would mean the, the complete ones, the ones made whole by faith. It's not for people of a certain age group. It's just for people who have trusted in God to a degree in which they're considered spiritually mature. It has nothing to do with the length of time someone's been a Christian or the amount of books someone's read. They're just the mature, and later we'll see that there are the infants. And the, So there's wisdom for the mature. Paul says, although it is not a wisdom of this age, Or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So there is wisdom to be had for the church but it's not like the wisdom of the world. And and we're not going to hear it from the teachers of the world. We're not going to hear it from the philosophers in the public square. We're not going to see it on the news or read it in the Atlantic. This wisdom is not like the wisdom of the world because Paul says it's secret wisdom. It's hidden wisdom. It's eternal wisdom that God has had since before He created the world. And it's wisdom that exists for the church's glory. And this is kind of cryptic language. He's saying that the wisest men on earth don't understand the wisdom that he is going to share with the church. This eternal, secret, hidden wisdom that's for the mature. Verse 8 would go on to say that this wisdom was not understood by the rulers of the age. And, and what, when Paul says rulers of the age, he just means people in power. He says it wasn't understood by people in power because if people in power had understood this secret hidden wisdom, they wouldn't have even crucified Jesus. What, what is this secret wisdom that would have prevented the rulers of the world from putting Jesus to death? It's an interesting question, and really it's the question that we'll come back to later on. For now we'll go from verse eight to verse 10, intentionally skipping chapter nine. I mean verse nine. And verse 10 says this: "About this secret, hidden wisdom, Paul says, "These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God." So there's a secret, hidden, divine wisdom that's for the glory of God's people. But it's not something that we can just search for and find. It's not something that we can just read enough books and and know. We can't listen to enough lectures and have because he says that the Spirit has to reveal it to us. The Spirit of God has to reveal it to us. And, And Paul even describes God's Spirit in this way of of knowing all things. It says the Spirit searches everything. And, and this doesn't mean like a child searching for Easter eggs. This means like searching it to know and with success. Paul says that the Spirit penetrates all things to know them, to know the depths even of God. So this secret, hidden, divine wisdom that has been delivered but it's from eternity is only known through the spirit of God revealing it to his people the Holy Spirit who penetrates all things to know them fully and then verses 11 and 12 are where things get really interesting as this tension seems to be building for, for the Corinthians where they're, they're still not probably sure what this wisdom is as we're not sure in verses 11 and 12 kind of up the ante on the tension of this text. Paul says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And so Paul uses a very human analogy to explain how God has revealed this wisdom to his people with this question of who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. To see what he's, he's trying to, to get us to understand, I want you to think about the person that you would say you're the closest to. For most of us in the room, that's going to be a a spouse or a best friend or a family member. This is a person who, if you were introducing them or talking about your relationship, you might casually say, I just know everything about this person. But now I want you to think about how that person relates to you. They would probably say the same thing. My wife would say, "I, I probably know just about everything there is to know about Cole. But does she? Like, like, are there deep parts of my heart that have yet to be revealed? Are there these deep emotions or desires that I couldn't even put into words that she would understand them? And, and I think if we're honest, it's, it's not that we've been dishonest with our loved ones. It's just that in the depths of our soul is something that we can't put into words and share with someone there are experiences and feelings and yearnings that nobody else is going to understand because we we couldn't even express it. But if we could express it, would they even understand it then? If I were to find a way to put into words all the, the depths of my thoughts and my feelings and my past and my desires for the future, would even my wife understand it? I would say probably not. Maybe to a degree, but she couldn't understand the depths of me. And Paul is saying, so it is with God. That that how could anybody know the depths of God except his own spirit? That the spirit of God has searched the depths of himself to know them, to understand all of God's will and his desires, to understand all of his words and his thoughts, all of his hopes for his people and for his creation." And then Paul says something profound. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What is Paul saying? This seems overwhelming. I mean, consider the God of the universe. Would you say that you know him well? Would you say that you know him better than your closest friend or your spouse or your mother or your father? I mean, Could you say that you know the thoughts and feelings and the ways of God, his will and his desires? We're talking about the majestic and holy and unfathomable God of creation. We're talking about the God who showed up in a burning bush to reveal himself to Moses. The God who placed the stars all throughout the universe and knows their names, but also the God who knows the number of hairs on your head. And that while he knows the number of hairs on your head, he is simultaneously at all times, at every moment, orchestrating every event throughout the universe that it might be for his glory. Would you say that you know this God? Most of us would probably say, no, I I don't think that I know the depths of Him. But what Paul is saying is that the Spirit of God has searched and known the depths of God. And that God has gracefully given His people His Spirit that they might know God's depths so that they can understand the secret wisdom that He has for them. As much depth as there is to the nature of God, so much has God revealed himself to his people in his spirit that we might be wise in the ways of him. Paul tells us that God's Spirit has searched and known all that there is to know about God and that God has freely given that Spirit to us, that we might also know all that there is to know, that we might have this perspective and wisdom that's secret and hidden that that can't even be understood by the wisest minds in the world, but God has gracefully given that Spirit to His people. Like how intimate has God made Himself known to His people? How vulnerable has the God of the universe shown Himself to be just so that His people might understand this wisdom that's secret and hidden and eternal? So, so if there's this secret, hidden wisdom that is so mysterious that God would have to give us His very soul, that He would pour out His very soul to be within us, that we had to understand it. What is that wisdom? Let's go back to verses 8 and 9. Paul says in verse 8 about the wisdom, he says, None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So Paul is linking this wisdom to the crucifixion in some way. He's saying that if this wisdom was understood by the rulers of the world, that they wouldn't have put Jesus to death. And then he follows that by quoting from the Old Testament. And, and when we're reading New Testament writing and Old Testament Is quoted, we always need to go back to the source. Because in it, the author is trying to reveal something about what he's explaining. This verse alone that's being quoted is Isaiah 64, chapter 4, but but Paul is trying to evoke the entire context of that verse. And so we need to go back to Isaiah and and see what he's saying. And, And we would need to go back to Isaiah 64 and see the context of this verse. And because I've done the homework for you, really we need to go back to Isaiah 62. In Isaiah chapter 62, the prophet of God begins to describe the future of God bringing salvation to the people of Israel. Now this is hundreds of years before Jesus came, hundreds of years before Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and the prophet is saying that salvation is coming to Israel. And and he uses language like when, when this salvation comes the people of God will be as a royal diadem in the hand of the Lord. And that they will be a burning torch among the nations. And so there's this way in which the people of God will be glorified and, and made beautiful when God brings this salvation. But then in Isaiah chapter 63, the prophet begins to talk about this theme throughout the Bible of God's judgment for sin. The prophet talks about the wickedness of humanity and how when God comes to bring salvation, he's also coming to bring judgment for sin, that his enemies will be vanquished. But there's a way in which he'll remember his people in mercy, even in the midst of his judgment. And so finally, when we arrive to Isaiah 64, the prophet begins talking about the day of the Lord. Now if you're not familiar with the Old Testament and particularly the Psalms and the Prophets, the day of the Lord might be a term that, that you've only heard like maybe on TV shows or from crazy radio preachers. But, but it's this deep theme throughout the Old Testament that is further talked about in the Gospels, this day of the Lord, and, and the people of Israel expected that there would be a day or a season in which God would return in a very imminent way to the earth. And that he would establish Israel, his people, as beautiful and powerful and, and holy among all other things. And that the enemies of God would be vanquished in judgment. And so there was this kind of terrifying fear of God's judgment coming with the day of the Lord. But also an expectation of hope for God's people. Because that's when God's people will be made victorious is on this day of the Lord. And so, the first four verses of Isaiah 64 say this, about the day of the Lord. The prophet is hoping for it, and he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So in this scene of the prophet Isaiah talking about the future coming of the day of the Lord. He talks about God's presence coming down in judgment and and that God's holiness would be so great that the mountains would quake at the sight of Him. That fire would cause things to boil just at the power of God being on the earth. The text has a, a... ominous way of talking about the enemies of God saying that they will know his name. That those who oppose God in the day of the Lord they'll know his name. Yet Isaiah also says that that there's a way in which the day of the Lord is coming that the people didn't expect. And I don't Like, what do we make of this? Like, the people of Israel were certainly waiting and expecting this day of the Lord. They were expecting God to come in His glory. They were expecting tremendous things to happen. The mountains were going to quake. But Isaiah says that it's going to happen in a way that they weren't looking for. And so what is the prophet talking about? What is this secret, hidden wisdom that's been revealed that... That Paul is telling us somehow has to do with the crucifixion of Jesus, but he's also talking about this future coming of the day of the Lord. And so what we need to understand is that Paul's use of this prophecy and saying that that if the people, the rulers of the world would have understood this wisdom, that the crucifixion of Jesus wouldn't have happened. So he's quoting this prophecy in relationship to the crucifixion of Jesus. Simply put, what Paul is doing is he's saying that the secret, hidden, eternal wisdom of God that is given to the mature for their glory lies within the crucifixion of Jesus. Namely, that the coming of Jesus to the world and particularly His death on the cross is what Isaiah was talking about when he said the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord in some way is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. Because in the person of Jesus, God has graciously come down to meet His people. And powerful things happened. God graciously came down to meet His people to redeem them to make them victorious, but also to make himself known as the judge among all the nations. In the crucifixion, God poured out judgment upon Jesus instead of upon his people. In that judgment, God redeemed his people through suffering. And this is what the prophet is talking about when he's saying the day of the Lord did not come in the way that we looked for. The people of Israel were expecting God to come in this tremendous and overwhelming victory where Israel would be raised up as this great nation among the nations. Yet God came as a humble servant, a lowly teacher, a homeless Palestinian Jew who was called a rebel and a revolutionary and a heretic and was put to death. Yet in his death, that is the coming of God and judgment. That is the coming of God to dwell with men in power. The secret wisdom that Paul is talking about that's given to the mature or complete in Christ is that the Spirit has revealed that in the crucifixion of this seemingly irrelevant Palestinian teacher named Jesus, that God has pronounced judgment upon the sins of all of His people and has put a down payment upon the judgment of all of those who would oppose Him in the future. A Christian can now look at the cross and see the world with different perspective. A Christian can now look at the world through the lens of judgment that was owed us yet was paid already in the death of Jesus. Now the fullness of the expectation of the day of the Lord has certainly not come. There will be a second coming of Jesus, and on that day, the fullness of God's judgment will be established, but there is no judgment that will happen on that day that wasn't decided at Calvary. There was no sin that God intended to atone for that He didn't atone for at the cross. And the secret wisdom that is revealed to the people of God through the Spirit is that in the crucifixion of Jesus is the judgment and salvation of God, is the fear and the majesty of God, is the terror and the beauty of God, and is the hope for those who it's revealed to. So now we move to verse 14, where it says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. When Paul says the natural person, he's not describing someone who is particularly evil or particularly animalistic. He's just describing anyone to whom God has not revealed this wisdom through his spirit. And he says that that they cannot look at the cross as the coming of the Lord and judgment and salvation that they don't have eyes to see the fullness of what God has accomplished in Jesus. And and so earlier in 1 Corinthians, when Paul says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, it begins to make more sense, because why would any man, apart from God revealing his spirit, look at the death of a failed revolutionary in first century Palestine as the hope for all eternity? seems foolish. It seems absurd that God's coming and glorious judgment would come through a homeless rabbi who was abandoned by his friends in his latest hours. It seems foolish to think that the fullness of God's majesty would be revealed in suffering and death. See, apart from the Spirit of God, enabling to understand the grandeur of what God did at the cross, worshiping Jesus as God is silly. It doesn't make any sense. It would make us to be the greatest of fools if the Spirit hadn't revealed this to us and yet we chose to believe it. It's illogical. But Paul is saying that this is the very wisdom of God. That this is the secret eternal wisdom that God's plan was for all along to pour out the fullness of Himself and His Spirit so that we could understand that in the death of His Son is the hope of all eternity. That He saved His people in the most foolish of ways because of His infinite wisdom. People don't understand the cross for what it is in the same way that you can't know the depths of my thoughts and my soul. I haven't shared that with you. I haven't poured out my spirit before you. But God in his infinite and matchless grace has done that for his people. He has poured out the depths of his character, his ways, his heart, that we can see something that seems like foolish violence as beautiful salvation. We can see that in the account of Jesus' crucifixion, that when Matthew writes that the earth quaked when He died, that that wasn't a coincidence or a mystery, but that's exactly what Isaiah was promising would happen in chapter 64. We can see that in all things, when we look in the cross, we are free. We're forgiven. That there is no more judgment that lies in wait for us because all of it was poured out on the Son at the cross. Therefore, Paul says, the spiritual person, as opposed to the natural person, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This question, for who has understood the mind of the Lord, is once again a quote from Isaiah, this time in chapter 40. And in. Chapter 40 of Isaiah, the prophet is talking about the majesty of God and the holiness of God and how he is unfathomable and uh, unable to be understood. And so when the prophet asks the question, who could understand him, it's rhetorical with an obvious answer of nobody. Who would be so bold as to think that they could understand the fullness of God, that they could understand the mind of the Lord? But what Paul has told us is that precisely God has given us his mind in his spirit that we can understand him. And that that is the majesty of the cross, that because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that God has faithfully given us his spirit that we can understand his mind, that we can know his ways, that we can read his word and have confidence in it. That things that were formerly mysterious or confounding or unable to be understood, are now illuminated in the majesty of God's grace for us in the cross of Christ. Paul says that the spiritual person judges all things. What does that mean? What Paul is saying is that if the Spirit has revealed to us the mystery of the cross that we have a new perspective on everything. That we have the very mind of Christ and that we view the world in an eternal perspective, particularly in an eternal perspective where things have already been decided at the cross. But Paul says at the beginning of the text that That this wisdom is for the mature. And if we were to read ahead into chapter three, we would see that Paul is going to tell the Corinthians that they're not the mature, that instead they are like infants because they're caught up in things like jealousy and rivalry and arguing over which teacher to follow, they're caught up in greed and immorality. They were seeking wisdom in all the ways that the world sought wisdom. Looking for the right teacher on the right subject with the right words to tickle their ears. They were not viewing the world through the lens of the wisdom of the cross. They knew it. They knew the gospel. They knew what Paul had been preaching to them, but had not yet taken roots in their hearts not in a way that it became the very lens through which they viewed all of the world. And so if we at Sojourn Mantra still choose to walk in jealousy and choose to stir up silly division and we choose to walk in strife with one another, if we're arguing over who we should listen to and who we shouldn't listen to, if we're going first to the leaders of the world to give us wisdom on subjects that they know nothing of, then Paul would tell us that we are not the mature, but we are infants because we've looked at the the cross and called it foolish. We've looked at the cross and said, that's not enough for us. That there must be wisdom of the world that I also need if I'm to reach a certain level of maturity or respect or renown. And when we do that, we fail to understand that God has come to his people and that the earth quaked when it did. We fail to understand that God has come to his people and that that the people of God were saved in the judgment of his son. We fail to understand that a kingdom has been inaugurated at the cross when we try to manufacture and maintain all the little kingdoms in our hearts, in our worlds, in our minds, in our households. But when Paul says that the spiritual person judges all things, He's saying something profound about what it means to be a Christian. Particularly a Christian walking in accordance with the Holy Spirit which God has given to us. He's saying that being a spiritual person means we're able to judge all things. And that what that really means is that having true eternal gospel perspective on all the world around us. It means that the cross changes everything for us. True wisdom is looking at the world through the lens of the cross, through the understanding that God has graciously come to make his people victorious. When we have true wisdom, we can look at the word of God in the Bible and see it manifest and prove true in the Son of God, Jesus in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. When we look at the world through the lens of the cross, we don't look at it with the mind and heart of the men around us or the women around us, but we look at the world through the mind and the heart of Christ. We see things as they are and through a lens of grace. It means that we're quick to forgive knowing the forgiveness God has given to us in His Son. It means that we're quick to be united to one another, knowing that what what Christ bought for us at the cross was unity. And that He's given us a spirit of unity in the depths of God being revealed to us. But seeing the world through the lens of the cross doesn't mean that we have to reject all worldly wisdom but it means that we have to filter all worldly wisdom through the gospel of God, through His truth. Knowing that sometimes the wisdom of the world will get caught in that filter and will not become part of our worldview. It means that we recognize that the wisdom of men is the wisdom of those who are not like God. It's the wisdom of those who are often doomed for destruction by what was promised at the cross. So we need to walk in maturity, accessing the Spirit of God that He's freely given to us, looking at the cross as our only hope and the lens through which we filter all things. An example of how we would walk in the wisdom of the cross is is this past week, my wife sent me an op-ed piece from the New York Times and It was the father of of a child with Down syndrome and he was making a plea that people who find out that their baby has Down syndrome in utero don't abort the baby. And he was making this plea because the wisdom of the world would say that you should abort the baby. This Child is not going to grow up to be autonomous. It won't live what we would call a fulfilling life. It won't contribute to society in a meaningful way. It will be an emotional and financial drain on his or her parents. And so it is really merciful, the world would say, to end the child's life in utero. And it blew my mind that someone would have to write an op-ed piece in the New York Times to convince us that that is a child worthy of life and dignity and love. But it blew my mind because I view the world through the lens of the cross and I know that, that apart from God's Spirit, I provide nothing valuable to the society around me. I know that apart from God's grace to me, that I'm simply a drain on the people around me. I certainly know that I'm not autonomous and that true autonomy doesn't even exist in God's kingdom. But the wisdom of the world will at times try to convince us of things that are apart from the things of God. But when we have access to God's spirit and we can view it through what was accomplished at the Christ, we can come away judging rightly, even if it's judging differently. So let us walk in the maturity of being made whole in faith in the gospel of God through Jesus Christ, our crucified Lord. Some of us in the room still look at the cross as folly and foolishness and silly. We still see the death of Christ as insignificant at worst or symbolic at best. And if you're one of those people I wouldn't call you silly or dumb or stupid. I would simply implore you to beg of God to reveal to you his depths through his spirit that he might illuminate the cross as the very thing which has decided all of the events of eternity the very wisdom of God for His people, that we might have hope and salvation and victory in the present and in the future over all of life's struggles. That we might not be a people who are bound to momentary suffering, but we have a future hope of glory and so we walk away rejoicing. I implore you to beg of God to give you that spirit. That you might have true forgiveness, true freedom, true wisdom, and a trustworthy lens through which to view the whole world. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and gracious. Father, we thank you that in Your Son and through Your Spirit that You've revealed Your depths to us that we might know You intimately. We pray that You would allow us to be empowered in wisdom and in truth, walking through our life as both a united church yet people in the world for Your glory, viewing all things through the lens of what You've accomplished for us at the cross. Would You sanctify us Would you encourage us in your Spirit? Would you let us look at the cross as our hope and our joy and our salvation and our victory and our source of wisdom? We ask that you would continue to pour out your Spirit upon us, that we might be faithful, gracious people in the world that we live in, that they might also see that true wisdom lies in your Son's death for them.